This is a recording of Heavenly Ascent in Jacob's Writings in 2 Nephi, addressing the question of what the plan of salvation is in the Book of Mormon, by Schuyler Smith, published in Interpreter, a Journal of Latter-day Saint Faith and Scholarship, read by Schuyler Smith. Abstract. Heavenly Ascent describes the process of an individual or community returning to the presence of God. Though various elements exist within Heavenly Ascent literature, general patterns can be discerned. This project uses one such pattern as a hermeneutical tool to examine what can be learned about how Book of Mormon prophets may have understood the plan of salvation. Specifically, Jacob's understanding of the plan of salvation will be analyzed by examining his writings in 2 Nephi 9-10. through The evidence from this study suggests that some Book of Mormon prophets, at least Jacob and Nephi, viewed the plan of salvation through the lens of heavenly ascent. In the text of the Book of Mormon, the various iterations of the term plan of salvation appear 30 times. This study asserts that a consistent paradigm was used by Book of Mormon authors to understand one element of the plan of salvation, namely heavenly ascent motifs. To investigate this thesis, a summary of key elements in heavenly ascent literature will briefly be examined. These elements will be organized into a model or lens that will be used as an interpretive tool throughout this paper. This overview of heavenly ascent will be followed by a synopsis of scholarly work that demonstrates similar heavenly ascent motifs in the Book of Mormon, providing plausible evidence that the Book of Mormon authors were aware of this concept and used it in their writings and teachings. Jacob's sermon in 2 Nephi chapters 9-10 through 10 will then be examined using the concepts of heavenly ascent as a hermeneutical lens. Once accomplished, this analysis will be used to consider whether Jacob understood the plan of salvation through the lens of heavenly ascent. Heavenly ascent Heavenly ascent, or celestial ascent, is one of the most widespread and long-lasting religious concepts in history. Examples of this phenomenon are widespread in the Jewish and Christian writings, as well as in other cultures and religions. This concept refers to the idea of a fallen mortal ascending back into the presence of God. This ascension can occur either in mortality or after death, as in the final judgment. Heavenly ascent as an umbrella concept incorporates several other experiences, such as theophanies, soda experiences, second comforter experiences, and temple experiences. These distinctions will not be the focus of this paper. Instead, all these concepts will be broadly examined to understand the elements common to heavenly ascent in general. Ritual ascent and heavenly ascent are closely related, but are two different ideas. Hugh Nibley explained that heavenly ascent is the realization of ritual ascent. One is the teaching or training to ascend, such as what occurs in temples, and the second is the actual act of ascension. While recognizing this technical difference between the two concepts, since the focus of this paper is on general motifs of ascension in literature, both heavenly and ritual ascent will be considered in this study. Heavenly Ascent literature includes many elements, but general patterns may be detected in the literature. The specific pattern this paper will utilize is sixfold. 1. The two-part structure. 2. Receiving light, knowledge, and mysteries. 3. Cleansing processes. 4. Prayer. 5. Angels or heavenly messengers. 6. The presence of God. The two-part structure, the downroad and the uproad. The first element is the overall structure of the accounts. Jeffrey Bradshaw explained, Accounts of heavenly ascent and temple ritual are not uncommonly structured into two main parts, a downroad followed by an uproad. Bradshaw has shown how consistent with this pattern, Moses 1 takes the prophet from a vision of his first home in the spirit world, then downward to the celestial world of the mortal earth, and finally, upward in a step-by-step return to God, Moses' experience culminates within the heavenly temple where he has shown a vision of the creation, the fall, and the essential role of the atonement, as described in Moses chapters 2-5. through See figure 1. These three terms, the creation, the fall, and the atonement, are referred to by Elder Bruce R. McConkie as the three pillars of eternity, and are often used inside heavenly ascent literature to frame this two-part structure. For example, Baker and Ricks have explained that ritual ascent dramas once performed in Solomon's temple contained didactic elements that focused on these three pillars. In this two-part structure, the downroad consists of the creation and the fall, while the uproad consists of the atonement. Receiving light, knowledge, and mysteries. The second part of the six-part pattern is often connected to the two-part structure discussed above, where an upward physical movement often paralleled a ritual heavenly ascent from darkness to increasingly greater light. This concept of light, which is pervasive in biblical and extra-biblical heavenly ascent literature, seems to be present in both the process and the culmination. For example, in Manichaean scripture and ritual, the descent of the first man from the land of light, his redemption, and his return to the kingdom was a favorite theme, and was in a very real sense the story of each soul. As individuals progress upward through different stages, they learned mysteries that allowed them to return to the land of light and receive a crown of glory, glory being associated with light in much of Jewish literature. 
Another example of light being connected to ascension is found in Enoch's various ascents recorded in 1st Enoch and 2nd Enoch, where Enoch was led forth into all secrets and shown all secrets of righteousness. One such instance depicts when Enoch the high priest figure has ascended through the heavens to stand before the throne of God. During this experience, Enoch is dressed in garments of glory and anointed with a fragrant myrrh oil, which appearance was greater than the greatest light. Thus, a gradual process seems to generally occur in which a participant progresses upward through receiving light, knowledge, and mysteries until they are eventually brought back into the presence of God. This light and knowledge were reserved for the elect and could include things like God's secret name. Cleansing Processes The third part of the six-part pattern is some type of cleansing process that purifies an individual. Candidates were often required to further prepare for their ascent through fasting and ritual purifications or risk being dismissed from before the celestial throne of God. For instance, when Isaiah experienced his heavenly ascent, he worried about his unclean state before the presence of God. After the seraphim purged Isaiah's lips with the coal from the altar, the prophet felt worthy to stand in the presence of God. Cleansing processes often included covenant-making motifs, such as in Jacob's vision of the ladder. Jacob saw a ladder on the earth, which reached to heaven. Ascending and descending on the ladder were the angels of God, sentinels to the portals of heaven. Above the ladder was the Lord himself, whom Jacob heard, and with whom he would make the very same covenant that his grandfather Abraham had made, the same covenant his father Isaac had prepared him to receive. And the prayer could be referred to in this quotation, it is implicit that making a covenant and being obedient to his conditions is a prerequisite for ascending to God's presence. At times, these covenants are entered into through the initiate's participation and ordinances. For instance, in the book of Moses, the narrative often stops the historical portions of the story and weaves into narrative framework ritual acts such as sacrifice, ordinances such as baptism, washings, and the gift of the Holy Ghost, and oaths and covenants such as obedience to marital obligations and oaths of property consecration. Consistent faithfulness to covenants entered into through the these ordinances cleanse an individual and was a part of the process of becoming adequate to see the face of the Lord. Prayer. The fourth part of the six-part pattern is prayer. After a person experiences the down road, there is a separation between God and man. This separation is often attributed to the veil, which is a kind of visionary screen that conceals the presence of God. In order to ascend back to God's presence, this separation must be bridged through some method. One general pattern is that of an individual calling upon God through prayer, rending the veil and standing in the presence of God. For instance, Bradshaw argued Job experienced in a sense in the Bible, which included the use of prayer circles as a tool that helped the hero meet the requirement to prove himself worthy. This principle might also be observed in Isaiah's ascension when, as pointed out earlier, he was worthy to be in God's presence only after one of the seraphs presses to his lips a live coal, presumably taken from the altar of incense, the only burning altar within the temple building, and significantly symbolic of a kind of truer order of perpetual prayer offered up constantly before the temple veil. Thus, it seems likely that prayer played an important role in the purging of Isaiah's sins necessary for his ascent. Angels or Heavenly Messengers the previous themes of cleansing processes, light knowledge, and prayer veil are often associated with the fifth part of the six-part pattern, which is the presence of angels or heavenly messengers. Angels are present several times in the patriarch Jacob's heavenly ascent experiences, starting with his previously discussed vision of the heavenly ladder. In this revelation, Jacob saw angels ascending and descending thereon and realized that the covenants he made with the Lord there were the rungs on the ladder that he himself would have to climb in order to obtain the promised blessings, blessings that would entitle him to enter heaven and associate with the Lord. However, these great promises and blessings were conditional rather than absolute. The realization of these blessings would not occur until years later when Jacob was dealing with some intense struggles and praying for greater light, knowledge, and power. This needed endowment of power came to Jacob through another heavenly messenger who appeared to Jacob and wrestled with him throughout the night. The result of this battle was the bursting of the veil, exposing an ultimate theophany in which Jacob was privileged to enjoy the literal presence of God and to have every promise of past years sealed and confirmed upon him. In addition to this function, it seems that angels play a role even after an individual enters the presence of God. Angels are often depicted surrounding the throne of God. This gathering is often referred to as a divine council and includes the divine beings who compose God's heavenly court. When a person is introduced to this divine council, they hear and see a theophany of Yahweh on his throne and are subsequently made aware of confidential heavenly secrets. This experience is named after the divine governing council and is referred to as a sowed experience. These experiences generally also include elements such as being tested, praising God, singing, learning of mysteries, and a charge to teach others upon returning from the council. In some cases, accounts of sowed experiences include the participants speaking with the tongues of angels, joining the divine council, and even experiencing some type of deified status. Presence of God 
The sixth and final part of the six-part pattern is the actual entering into the presence of God. This constituted a sort of reversal from the fall of Adam when mankind lost the presence of God, at times associated with some type of judgment motif. It is during this event that the divine and mortal are brought face to face and often share some form of conversation. In some heavenly sent literature, God declares the ascended person's salvation to be made sure during this conversation and might even include some type of ordinance. Either way, this moment is the culmination of a process in which a person or community successfully climbed the upward road back to their original heavenly height. Heavenly Ascent Motifs in the Book of Mormon the presence of heavenly ascent literature in the Book of Mormon should not be surprising considering that the Book of Mormon is yet in many regards a book rooted in the ancient Near East. As such, like the Bible and other Near Eastern texts, the Book of Mormon provides a depiction of the divine council and narrates several instances where prophets were introduced into this assembly, made privy to heavenly secrets, and commissioned to preach their newfound knowledge to others. Baker and Ricks have suggested that heavenly set motifs can be identified within the individual works of the Book of Mormon, such as in the teachings of King Benjamin, Abinadi, Alma, and Moroni. Moreover, Mormon organized the entire Book of Mormon with a carefully structured pattern designed to teach readers about their ascent into the presence of God. He states, I, Mormon, make a record of the things which I have both seen and heard, and call it the Book of Mormon. This phrase suggests that Mormon had entered into the Divine Council enjoyed the presence of God, and was now commissioned to teach others about how to come into the presence of God. This proposed mission for Mormon is congruent with one of Moroni's closing exhortations that suggests that the agenda behind writing the Book of Mormon was to help readers accept the Savior's invitation to rend that veil of unbelief and to see God face to face, as Moroni and others in the book had done. In addition to the closing comments in the Book of Mormon, its opening comments regarding Lehi's prophetic call could also be understood in heavenly ascent terms. The account opens with Lehi praying to the Lord and a pillar of fire or light descending upon him. During this experience, the scriptures records that Lehi saw and heard much. After returning home, Lehi is overcome with the spirit and carried away in a vision. In the vision, Lehi sees God sitting upon his throne, surrounded with numberless concourses of angels in the attitude of singing and praising their God, a description clearly connected to the divine council scenes in heavenly ascent literature. Furthermore, scholars have suggested additional connections to heavenly ascent in this narrative include the moments when Lehi joins the heavenly host in the praise and song, sees Jesus Christ with his twelve apostles and compares them to celestial lights, and receives a book from the divine messenger. Considering this, it is likely Lehi received a sowed experience during his multi-part manifestation of the divine in which he became a messenger sent to represent the assembly that had convened in order to pass judgment upon Jerusalem for a violation of God's holy covenants. Lehi would eventually fulfill this divine mandate in verse 18, which includes another occurrence of the phrase, seen and heard. Heavenly sent motifs appear between Lehi and Moroni's words as well. Helaman 10 may be just such a case. In this account, God addresses Nephi, the son of Helaman, in the presence of mine angels, suggesting the traditional divine council scene. This heavenly court location seems to be confirmed by realizing that verse 8 suggests Nephi has been transported to a new location, a temple. Furthermore, this temple in verse 8 might be connected to this mountain in verse 9, further suggesting a much more divine geography, because exceedingly high mountains can be synonymous with the heavenly temple, the traditional meeting place of God's divine assembly. During this experience, Nephi also receives a call to preach about what he saw and heard, which he accomplished when he did return unto the multitudes and began to declare unto them the word of the Lord straightway after his theophany. The Brother of Jared's Experience the brother of Jared's experience recorded in Ether 3 is yet another example of heavenly sent motifs. The Jaredite account begins with the people being removed from the presence of God with the rise of the Tower of Babel. The brother of Jared and his companions quickly start their trek back into the presence of God through separating themselves from wickedness and offering frequent prayer to God. Eventually, the brother of Jared's spiritual ascent is matched with his physical ascent into a mountain, where after the prophet recognizes his unworthiness, as Isaiah did, the Lord asks him certain questions, gives him light, extends his hand finger through the veil, and receives the brother of Jared into his full presence. The Lord accomplishes this by first showing his hand to the brother of Jared, and then by beginning a line of questioning aimed at testing the prophet, of which Moroni could not make a full account of. After passing the test, the brother of Jared receives information, these words in verse 13, that the Lord said he shall speak in verse 11, which included some type of incredible knowledge that fully opened the veil for the prophet. The description of this knowledge remains absent in the text. This fact is additional evidence of this being a heavenly ascent, because the knowledge given by God in these types of accounts should remain an esoteric mystery to the uninitiated reader until they themselves ascend to God's presence.
While this account lacks any direct acknowledgement of a divine messenger, other than Christ himself, or divine counsel, it does not necessarily preclude the possibility that those elements are present, but unmentioned. Furthermore, the signal phrase of seen and heard appears twice in verse 21, describing the brother of Jared's experience. Therefore, considering this evidence and the presence of other important heavenly sent motifs in this account, this account remains an excellent example of heavenly sent literature in the Book of Mormon. Nephi, son of Lehi, and heavenly sent. Any discussion of heavenly sent motifs in the Book of Mormon would be incomplete without considering the work of Nephi, son of Lehi. Because of the excellent example of heavenly sent motifs it contains, and its importance to the remainder of this paper, a synopsis about this work has been saved until now. Nephi begins his record with a colophon, introducing himself and his reasons for making his record. In this colophon, Nephi says he had a great knowledge of the mysteries of God. The very next statement from Nephi is, Therefore, I make a record of my proceedings in my days, meaning that his knowledge of the mysteries is Nephi's justification for making a record. Rapalike explains the term mystery comes from the Greek mysterion. The connection of the prophets with mysteries dates back to the role of the prophet as a witness in the heavenly sowed, where he heard the secret counsels of God and conveyed them to men. Thus Nephi is essentially claiming that he is a true prophet who has ascended to God's presence and is now writing a record to teach readers how to receive their own sowed experience. This understanding significantly colors certain statements made by Nephi with heavenly sent undertones, as when he wrote, For the fullness of mine intent is that I may persuade men to come unto the God of Abraham. In this light, to come unto God means to literally enter the the Lord's presence. Nephi's claim to know the mysteries previously discussed is arguably derived from events that occurred in 1 Nephi 11, when Nephi, after hearing all the words of my father, was desirous also that I might see and hear and know of these things. The vision begins with Nephi being caught away in the spirit of the Lord, yea, into an exceedingly high mountain. This description shares much in common with traditional Near Eastern imagery concerning the divine assembly and invocation of heavenly beings as council witnesses. On the mountain, Nephi was interviewed by the spirit of God. Judgment scenes like this are common in heavenly sent literature. In this example, Bakavoy explains that by taking on this role of inquisitor, the spirit of the Lord assumed the traditional role of temple priest slash guardian, and Nephi was able to receive the greater light and knowledge he desired on the mountain of God. After this interaction, Nephi was then inducted into similar, possibly even identical mysteries as his father. Nephi likely used this knowledge to structure his final thoughts in 2 Nephi chapters 31-32. In these two chapters, Nephi teaches readers how to return to the presence of God themselves by following a pattern of exercising faith, repenting, being baptized, receiving the Holy Spirit, lights and knowledge, praying, hearkening to the voice of angels, and then entering the presence of God. Spencer refers to this process as angelicization and argues that Nephi is modeling this process after Lehi's ascent to the divine council. In essence, then, Nephi is promising that the obedient can, as Lehi had done, join the angelic council and become saved in God's presence. Rapalai suggests that Nephi's closing remarks are also connected to this heavenly sent agenda. When Nephi bids farewell to his readers by declaring his words to be the word of God and promising that he will be present at their judgment day, he is essentially claiming to be a part of the divine council. Thus, Nephi concludes by confirming his sowed experience and testifying that the scriptures that he writes and delighteth in are simply the record of the things which I have seen and heard in his heavenly ascent. If readers want to be saved in the presence of God as he and his father were, Nephi witnesses that they must follow his heavenly ascent pattern presented in 2 Nephi chapters 31 through 32. Examining 2 Nephi chapters 9 through 10 through the hermeneutical lens of heavenly ascent. The manifestation of God in heavenly ascent results in what Nephi and other Book of Mormon prophets understood as salvation, or in other words, redemption from the fall of Adam back into the presence of God. Thus, if heavenly ascent is synonymous with redemption, then the plan of redemption in the Book of Mormon is synonymous with the motifs of heavenly ascent. Though certain scholars have touched on this connection, there has been no study to date that has rigorously examined Book of Mormon sermons to verify this statement. This paper fills this gap in the research by offering a hermeneutical approach of how to examine sermons in the Book of Mormon to identify if its prophets share a a common heavenly ascent paradigm when discussing the plan of salvation. This will serve as a model for other sermons to be likewise examined in future studies. For now, this section will analyze portions of Jacob's writings in 2 Nephi to discover if he might have used heavenly ascent motifs to understand the plan of salvation. After this analysis of Jacob's sermon, a discussion of the data collected using this interpretive technique will be completed with suggestions for further research. 2 Nephi chapter 9-10 through 10, Overview Jacob's words in 2 Nephi chapters 9-10 through 10 are part of a larger two-day discourse. Although the setting for this event is unknown, it is likely that it occurred in connection with the Nephites' recent exodus fleeing the Lamanites. Additionally, certain scholars suggest the sermon was given in relation to a covenant renewal ceremony during the Feast of Tabernacles, 
or Sakat. This is significant because other scholars claim that an operetta-like play containing extensive heavenly scent motifs was anciently associated with this festival. If Jacob was speaking during the Feast of Tabernacles, the possibility of a sermon containing heavenly scent themes might comfortably situate it within an ancient Israelite context. While not all of Jacob's words are recorded, Jacob appears to be addressing the Nephites' mentality that they have been removed from the promises of God. In this two-day discourse, Jacob quotes from passages of Isaiah and then provides his personal commentary on those pericopes. He teaches the people about death and hell and about how the atonement of Jesus Christ overcomes these barriers. He wants the Nephites to know that the promises made to the general Israelite community still apply to them as well. Though they have been driven out of past lands of inheritance, the land they currently live on will be their land of inheritance. Thus, the promises of the Abrahamic covenant still apply to them. Heavenly Sent Motifs in 2 Nephi chapters 9-10 through 10. Second Nephi chapters 9-10 through 10 will now be examined through the hermeneutical lens of the six-part heavenly ascent pattern discussed earlier. In the beginning of his remarks, Jacob explains that he has chosen to quote Isaiah so that the audience might know concerning the covenants of the Lord that he has covenant with all the house of Israel. These covenants Jacob is speaking about refer to the Abrahamic covenant, which was promised to Abraham and to his posterity. These covenants were renewed with the entire community of Israel at the Mount Sinai. In his speech, Jacob explains the purpose of these covenants were to restore the people to the lands of inheritance and to the true church and fold of God. It is likely these covenants and the two purposes outlined by Jacob carried with them the understanding of promises of heavenly ascent, given that Abraham was experiencing a theophany during the making of this covenant. When the same covenant is made with Abraham's grandson, Jacob, it is likely he also receives a theophany. Additionally, the renewal of this covenant with the community of Israel at Mount Sinai is also connected to a theophany for Moses. Jacob's opening remarks might have been crafted to signal to the attentive listener to expect heavenly sent motifs in his following remarks. If correct, this significantly affects how one should understand Jacob's teaching that, nevertheless, in our bodies we shall see God. Rather than only referring to a post-death manifestation of the Master, Jacob might also be referring to a visitation from God while in mortality, like Abraham, Jacob, and Moses experienced. Following his opening remarks, Jacob immediately describes the two-part structure found in the heavenly ascent literature. He first references Jesus Christ as the great creator, then repeats this title in the next verse and explains that this creator has a plan for mankind. In connection to verse 5, verse 6 and 7 summarize this plan as including the creation, the fall of mankind, and then the infinite atonement. This model then portrays a person's descent through the creation and fall pattern, and then a person's ascent through the atonement which brings mankind back into the presence of God, from which they were cut off from due to this fall. This model then portrays a person's descent through the creation and fall pattern, and then a person's ascent through the atonement, which brings mankind back into the presence of the Lord, from which they were cut off from due to the fall. Hence, Jacob seems to be introducing the plan of salvation in heavenly ascent terminology. Jacob then begins to outline the two directions a person might take at the low point in the two-part structure. The first, rather than a heavenly ascent pattern, could be termed a hellish descent pattern because of a person's further descent away from God when following this path. Because of its antithetical nature, this negative pattern will be discussed later in this paper. Jacob's second direction follows a heavenly ascent pattern. This pattern prepareth the way for an escape from the first pattern and is the great plan of God and the way of deliverance of our God. The succeeding verses continue Jacob's discussion about the resurrection and its role in bringing mankind back into the presence of God. One can find several heavenly ascent motifs in this section. For instance, when a person is resurrected in the presence of God, the participant receives special knowledge or perfect knowledge. This type of knowledge could be similar to the phrase Jacob uses in the next chapter, true knowledge. In that instance, this special knowledge refers to a knowledge of their Redeemer, argued later in this paper to mean a physical experience with the Lord's presence. Thus, the knowledge in 2 Nephi chapters 9 verses 13 through 14 might very well be associated with the mysteries received in sowed experiences, or in the very least, consciously designed to be redolent of it. This resurrection scene describes another motif that is common in heavenly ascent literature, judgment scenes. An example of this is Nephi's cross-examination in 1 Nephi chapter 11, verse 4. Such judgment scenes in heavenly ascent literature provided a method for the initiate to prove worthiness. Judgment is an important motif in Jacob's sermon, appearing multiple times, and is also tied to people being worthy of the presence of God. In connection to the idea of proving worthiness, Jacob's resurrection and judgment scene also correlates with another heavenly ascent motif, a cleansing process. The special knowledge of Jacob mentioned in relation to the judgment makes the resurrected being aware of their guilt or righteousness before God. This is resonant of the biblical scene when Isaiah suddenly recognizes his state of uncleanliness during his heavenly ascent. Like Isaiah's live coal that cleanses his lips, Jacob explains that to be clothed with purity, one must repent and be baptized in his name, having perfect faith in the Holy One of Israel. 
Once cleansed in this manner, a person is not only worthy of entering the presence of God, but also of inheriting the kingdom of God. These verses, therefore, contain Jacob's warning of the reality of a heavenly ascent and the dangers of entering God's presence without previously cleansing oneself appropriately. Death, Hell, and the Temple-Oriented New Year Feast The outcome of this cleansing pattern is to destroy two enemies, death and hell. First reference in verse 10, this duet is a major theme of Jacob's sermon. In fact, 2 Nephi 9 contains more references to hell than any other chapter in all scripture. One reason this is significant is because of the connection of this duet to a pre-exilic temple-oriented New Year's festival. The theory of this pre-exilic temple-oriented festival has been present in scholarship since the late 19th century. Hugh Nibley was the first Latter-day Saint scholar to employ this idea. Basically, this argument claims that associated with the temple, there was a ritual drama that consisted of a dramatic representation of the full eternal sweep of the powers of the Savior's atonement, and that it was originally the focal point of the Law of Moses. The Israelites would ritually reenact the story of their origins and purposes with a drama that included a remaking of their earlier ordinances and covenants. This ritual ascent mirrored the heavenly ascent, ending with a person's reconciliation with God and becoming a king and a priest. To assure the participants of their ability to accomplish this divine odyssey, the drama promised that Jehovah himself would avert the king's difficulties, even to defeating the ultimate enemies, death and hell, to save the king and his people. This was a major theme of the ritual and allowed the initiate to ascend to the cosmic temple. In fact, as the festival ritual came to a conclusion, there was a celebration of Jehovah's ultimate triumph over evil and of his creation of a new and wonderful world of peace and harmony. This imagery juxtaposes the evil of death and hell with the creation story. Interestingly, throughout the ancient Near East, a common variation on this narrative was to personify the pre-cosmic ocean, characterizing it as a serpent or monster, transforming the creation process into a battle between God the creator and chaos the monster. Thus Jehovah was often seen by the Israelites as a divine warrior who battled this monster of death and hell. It is possible that Jacob could be consciously using the motif of this drama in his sermon because the ritual was being celebrated at the same time as the delivery of 2 Nephi chapter 9. Thus, when Jacob refers to the Savior's victory over death and hell, it is probably not a coincidence that this motif is identical to the heavenly ascent narrative of the pre-exilic drama. Even Jacob's use of the term monster in describing death and hell ties perfectly well within the festival drama. This monster parallels the drama's concept of chaos, described by Jacob as experiencing death without the mediation of the atonement. Jacob adds that when Christ overcomes this monster, mankind inherits a new world, the kingdom of God. This is strikingly like the end of the temple drama when Christ triumphs over evil and creates a new and wonderful world of peace and harmony. Day of Atonement and Nephi's Sermon in 2 Nephi chapters 31-32 through 32. There are more heavenly ascent motifs contained in 2 Nephi chapter 9, but to appreciate their significance, a basic review of the Day of Atonement, of Nephi's sermon in 2 Nephi 31-32, through 32, and of the heavenly ascent agendas of these two things, must be discussed. The Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur in Hebrew, is a ritual ascent festival celebrated in Judaism on the tenth day of the seventh month of the Jewish calendar. It is considered by the Jews to be the holiest day in their calendar because it offers them atonement, meaning the end of estrangement and the return to perfect unity. The need for a Day of Atonement begins in the Garden of Eden, where God seems to reside, as he is seen walking and relating intimately to Adam and Eve. Disobedience and sin cause them to be driven from the Garden and the presence of God. See figure 2. However, the covenantal relationship of the people of Israel, along with the liturgy of the tabernacle, made it possible for God's presence to once again be available to the people. This was the point of the Day of Atonement. Once a year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, Adam's eastward expulsion from the garden is reversed when the high priest travels west past the consuming fire of the sacrifice and the purifying water of the labor through the veil woven with images of cherubim. Thus, he returns to the original point of creation where he pours out the atoning blood of the sacrifice, reestablishing the covenant relationship with God. Thus, this ritual ascent was the acme of all temple rituals because it was a day of purification that ritually reconnected the Israelites with God and brought them back into his presence. A simplified illustration of this ascent is depicted in figure 2. As discussed previously, Nephi is likely utilizing this festival in his sermon contained in 2 Nephi chapters 31-32. Hopkin argues there is a connection between Nephi's description of the doctrine of Christ and the high priest's ascent through the temple during the Day of Atonement by pointing out direct parallels between the two ideas. Nephi was rhetorically providing his audience with a familiar context by describing them in terms provided by the Temple of Solomon. Thus, Nephi's doctrine of Christ parallels the high priest's ritual ascent in the Day of Atonement. See figure 3. By moving by faith or real intent to and then past the altar of sacrifice, sacrifice, which Jesus states is the sacrifice of a repentant, broken heart and contrite spirit, a person begins the process of entering the presence of God. After faith and repentance, a person is baptized, which is associated here with the labor of water. 
This leads a person to the gate by which they should enter, which in this paradigm is the entrance to the holy place of the tabernacle. Once inside the holy place, there are certain objects that might correspond to what Nephi wants his readers to do after ye have gotten into this straight and narrow path. The menorah, with its blazing light, relates well to receiving the baptism of fire and seeing by the light of the Holy Ghost. Another connection can be found in the table of shoe bread and its bread and wine. This bread and wine provide a communal feast with God, symbolizing the strengthening power of the word of God to move forward in the name and power of Christ. This is directly connected to Nephi's concept of feasting on the word of God and enduring to the end. The second to last symbol is the altar of incense, which symbolizes the prayers of all God's people. The altar of incense connects to Nephi's instruction that praying, asking, and knocking leads a person to the veil of God. Embroidered on this veil were two cherubim, suggesting that a person must interact with angels, i.e. speak with the tongue of angels, to come into the presence of God, which was symbolized by the Holy of Holies. In Nephi's sermon, the worshiper is left before the veil in the holy place, seeking to speak the tongue of angels by a reliance on the word of God and the gift of the Holy Ghost. This is noteworthy because the phrase tongue of angels is Nephi's way of inviting readers to ascend to a sowed experience and, as the angels do, sing and praise the name of the Lord. Thus, what Nephi is doing is using the ritual ascent of the Day of Atonement to promise readers if the worshiper will endure appropriately, it is possible to pass through the veil, enter into the divine council, seeing God in the flesh face to face. Continuing the approach towards the presence of God in 2 Nephi chapter 9. The model Nephi uses in 2 Nephi chapters 31-32 can help readers identify the heavenly ascent motifs inside Jacob's work in 2 Nephi chapter 9. The fact that chapter 9 comes first could lead a reader to conclude that the latter chapters might be referring to the first. However, there are several problems with this simple analysis. First, it's unclear chronologically when either of these sections were created in relation to the other. Nephi's teachings in 2 Nephi chapters 31-32 could have previously been given to the Nephites. Jacob could be quoting his brother's thoughts, and Nephi simply re-recorded or included them later while writing his book. Because of this ambiguity, this paper examines the intertextuality without a stance on which author is building off the work of the other. Jacob's Cleansing Process Jacob's Cleansing Process faith, repentance, baptism, receiving the Holy Ghost, and enduring to the end, is identical to the one Nephi describes in 2 Nephi chapters 31-32. Jacob is using the identical pattern to help listeners accomplish the same heavenly ascent agenda Nephi describes. Note also the emphasis on heeding Jacob's words, which are also the words of your maker and the words of truth. Three times Jacob stresses the importance of remembering these words. Significantly, remembering the words is associated with the concept of feasting on things which perisheth not, neither can be corrupted. In this sermon, Jacob associates perishing and corruption with the presence of the monster and the devil. He is unfolding the process that leads to the presence of the Lord. Thus, Nephi's heavenly ascent design in 2 Nephi chapters 31-32 finds an echo in Jacob's association of feasting and heeding the word of the Maker to come unto God. The intertextuality of 2 Nephi chapter 9 verses 50 and 51 supports this conclusion. Following Jacob's previous precedent, this pericope is a quotation from Isaiah chapter 55 verses 1 through 2. These verses introduce a chapter that is an invitation to redemption, focused on covenant making and seeking ye the Lord. Themes clearly connected to the day of atonement imagery. This Old Testament chapter contains the admonition to come seven times with the overt purpose of coming unto me, i.e. the Lord. Isaiah's message noticeably parallels Jacob's, which is the invitation to come unto the Lord, the Holy One, and to come unto that God who is the rock of your salvation. This thought becomes more significant when connected with Baker's and Rick's claims about the Feast of the Tabernacle drama, that the power of his redemption is the power to bring us back to him. In much of the Book of Mormon, the realization of the drama's crescendo, to become a son and heir of God, and to return to his presence, is encapsulated in the single word, redeem. The idea of redemption and its heavenly ascent undertone connects both the plan of salvation and Isaiah and Jacob's invitation to come into Christ. If to be redeemed means to be brought into the presence of God, then the phrase plan of redemption means the plan whereby one can be brought back into the presence of God and has the same connotation as the frequently repeated invitation to come unto Christ. Interpreting 2 Nephi chapter 9 verses 50 and 51 with this in mind, Jacob could be using Isaiah's words to invite his listeners to enter a covenantal and redemptive relationship by feasting on the word of God, which would result in ascending into the presence of the Lord. This thought mirrors both of Nephi's previously discussed writings with sowed experiences in general. Given that Nephi's invitation to come unto the God of Abraham has heavenly ascent undertones, consider how in 2 Nephi chapters 31-32, through 32, Nephi connects feasting upon the words of Christ as part of the process that leads to God's presence. The intertextuality between these two phrases in the text in 2 Nephi chapter 9 was likely not lost on Jacob if Nephi's works preceded his own. For instance, when comparing Jacob chapter 9 verses 50-51 through 51 with Isaiah chapter 55 verses 1 
1 through 2, the most significant redaction Jacob makes is his replacements of Isaiah's phrase, and eat ye that which is good, with a phrase very reminiscent of Nephi's two phrases just discussed, and come unto the Holy One of Israel, and feast upon that which perisheth not, neither can be corrupted. Jacob might be stressing the heavenly ascent nature of this invitation by using more overt terminology that Nephi also uses to describe heavenly ascent motifs. Furthermore, this overt terminology could also be seen as describing the bowl of manna kept inside the Ark of Covenants in the Holy of Holies. Unlike the daily manna, this manna did not perish or become corrupted. If this connection was intentional, Jacob could have been tying Nephi's concept of feasting with the bowl of manna and to the Holy of Holies, which represented God's presence and the climax of the ritual ascent in the tabernacle. Nephi says feasting on the word will tell you all things what you should do. A phrase that implies acting on the invitation to feast on the word and come to Christ will introduce a person to knowledge not previously known. Nephi also connects this process to angels and their instructions. By using the term feast, Jacob is carefully inviting readers to seek out additional light and knowledge with the goal of literally seeing God, just like Nephi and other authors of heavenly ascent literature invited their readers to do. Nephi's admonition to ask and knock in search of more light is echoed in Jacob's words that whoso knocketh to him will he open, and the things hid from them forever will be revealed unto them. This is also reminiscent of the heavenly ascent motif of special or hidden knowledge that is revealed to those who are involved in so experiences. In addition to this, engaging in this process himself has led Jacob to praise the holy name of my God, a phrase strikingly suggestive of so experiences in which the initiate joins the heavenly council by singing and praising the Lord. Even the idea of God's holy name suggests Jacob might be speaking in heavenly ascent terminology, where participants often seek after and learn the secret name of God. In Jacob's sermon, one of the reasons he explains for giving his sermon is so that ye may learn and glorify, i.e. praise, the name of your God. Note first the concept of learning the secret name of God, and second the concept of praising it. Jacob's frequent use of the idea of God's name might be Jacob's way of declaring his special knowledge received from a divine council experience. If Jacob has joined the divine council, then Jacob's sermon along with his covenantal action to shake his garments as a witness to the God of my salvation fulfills his mission to declare unto the people what he had seen and heard as a commissioned member of God's court. Additionally, the very act of drawing attention to his garment might allude to heavenly sent motifs. The day of atonement immediately precedes the Feast of Tabernacles during which Jacob is apparently speaking. According to the Lord's instruction in Leviticus concerning the Day of Atonement, the high priest was to wash his flesh in water and then to put on the holy linen coat, linen breeches, a linen girdle, and a linen miter. While wearing these garments, the high priest was to make an atonement for himself, the temple, and the people by sacrifice. During the ceremony, the high priest and priests were instructed on numerous occasions to remove their garments, wash themselves, and wash their clothes. Such emphasis on garments being kept clean, for example, from the blood of the sacrifices, in connection with the temple on the Day of Atonement, may have inspired Jacob to take off his garments and display them before the Nephites. This theme is further supported Jacob's reference to being clothed with purity, yet even with the robe of righteousness. And by Isaiah's passage, Jacob quotes, Awake, awake, put on thy strength, O Zion, put on thy beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city, for henceforth there shall no more come into thee the uncircumcised and the unclean. This assertion not only ties Jacob's words to the New Year festivals, but also associates Jacob's message with heavenly scent motifs. Consider the garment as a representation of the high priest's ritual scent into the Lord's presence. By Jacob connecting his garment with the high priest, he could have been alluding to his own heavenly ascent experience. Just as the high priest had to cleanse his garment for his ascent, so Jacob could be leaning on the imagery to claim that he had cleansed his own garments by the process described in verses 23 and 24 i.e. the doctrine of Christ. Thus, Jacob's garment could have been a symbol of his heavenly ascent. One final way Nephi's sermon might help us understand the heavenly ascent nature of Jacob's discourse is to pay attention to how both authors choose to make their closing remarks. Just as prayer, represented by the altar of incense, is the last symbol in the tabernacle before approaching the veil, and prayer is the last idea Nephi discusses in chapter 32, prayer is one of the last topics mentioned by Jacob in his closing remarks for his sermon in chapter 9. He invites all listeners to pray unto God continually by day, and give thanks unto his holy name by night. Nephi does not use the word continually as Jacob does, but the elder brother does instruct his readers to do something of equivalent nature, to pray always. This act of supplication to the Lord fits perfectly within heavenly ascent motifs, where prayer is used to help help an individual part the veil and enter into the presence of God. It is fitting then that Jacob ends the day by reminding all who listen to him about the covenants and condescensions of the Lord, two phrases that echo Nephi's writings describing his own sowed experience and that are perhaps used by Jacob to suggest the possibility to anyone listening of having a similar ascent experience. Hellish Descent Opposed to Heavenly Ascent 
Instead of ascending into God's presence after the low point of the two-part structure, a person can make a hellish descent into the presence of the devil. The themes of heavenly ascent become reversed, so a list of them would include concepts like disbelief, sin, darkness, slash knowledge being hidden, demons, slash angels of the devil, and the presence of the devil, slash hell. The presence of both patterns suggests the author is consciously using a heavenly sent paradigm to describe the path a person can choose in his or her life. In Jacob's writing in 2 Nephi chapter 9, these two choices first appear in verses 4 through 6 when seeing God is juxtaposed with being cut off from the presence of the Lord because of subjection to the devil. The outcome of this subjection or hellish descent is corruption, misery, and darkness instead of mercy, joy, and life eternal. Jacob explains that the devil himself experienced this hellish descent, falling from the presence of the Lord and becoming the devil. According to Jacob, this is the outcome for anyone who chooses a similar path. In contrast to heavenly ascent, hellish descent seeks after secret works of darkness rather than hidden truths of light and is rewarded with secret combinations instead of heavenly mysteries. An additional comparison can be found in the observation that, like God, the devil employs angels to entice individuals along their paths. However, the devil's angels lead a person down a path that aims to shut out people from the presence of our God, whereas God's angels bring people to the presence of God. Jacob also includes a process for hellish descent that contrasts with the cleansing process of heavenly ascent. Rather than faith in God's word and repentance when one falls short, hellish descent encourages hearkening not unto the counsel of God and acting on sinful desires. The woe verses in 2 Nephi chapter 9 verses 30 through 39 contain a sample of actions that one may take to continue being cut off from God's presence rather than entering it through a cleansing process. Welch has argued that the ten woes reflect the ten commandments in Exodus 20. If true, the woes stand in direct opposition to the Sinai covenant discussed previously as heavenly ascent literature. Either way, Jacob is clear. If his audience act on this list of woes rather than the cleansing process contained in verses 23 and 24, they must be damned. Instead of the people entering a covenantal relationship, the token of which is circumcision, according to Genesis chapter 17, verse 11, the people become uncircumcised of heart and lose their standing with God. By frequently returning to the opposing outcomes of each path, Jacob is using hellish descent to emphasize the superiority of the heavenly ascent pattern and to motivate listeners to experience an ascent to God's presence for themselves. Jacob's Sermon on Day 2 In 2 Nephi chapter 10, Jacob reprises the salvation theme of the prior day's sermon, but now focuses the salvation more on physical or geographical terms than spiritual terms. Jacob appears to have planned on the previous day's discussion about obtaining a spiritual or heavenly land of inheritance, i.e. eternal life in God's presence, to have built confidence in his listeners about the promises of a physical land of inheritance. In other words, if Jacob could convince his listeners that the first was possible, maybe the second topic would seem more attainable. In addition to this, in 2 Nephi chapter 10, there seems to be other aspects of the relationship between the spiritual and the physical promises of the covenant that Jacob is attempting to address. One hint of this is in the realization that the objective of the geographical side of the promises mentioned in 2 Nephi chapter 10 verse 2 is to give the Nephites the true knowledge of their savior, a very spiritual outcome. Thus, just as the spiritual promises might have positively affected Jacob's listeners to trust in the geographical promises, the geographical promises might have positively affected the spiritual promises by providing a means that they might be accomplished. Nevertheless, the purpose of the sermon on the second day was to teach the Nephites how God has covenanted with their fathers that they shall be restored in the flesh upon the earth and to the lands of their inheritance. This promise includes those who are dispersed on the isles of the sea, which Jacob emphasizes includes the Nephites by repeating four times this land in his speech, and then finally declaring, we are upon the, an isle of the sea. Thus, though the Nephites feel put away and cast off forever, Jacob assures them that God still watched over them, and that therefore the covenant promises would still be met. This assurance would have provided the community with the faith necessary to establish a new home in this wilderness. Yet even while focusing on the promised blessings of a physical land of inheritance, Jacob still couches his message within heavenly ascent motifs. Following his previous day sermon in which he discussed angels enticing people down a hellish descent, and by implication heavenly angels helping people experience heavenly ascent, Jacob begins his sermon with the words from an angel of God. One implication of this could be that though the message might directly focus on the physical scattering and gathering of the people from and to the land of inheritance, the purpose of this message is much more spiritual and divine in its objectives. Another example of this couching in heavenly ascent motifs is how the Nephites' physical scattering due to being driven out of the land of our inheritance is associated in this chapter with the people's sins, sins being an obvious influence of a person's spiritual status in their heavenly ascent journey. For the physical gathering to succeed, secret works of darkness must needs be destroyed and repentance must occur. These, of course, were two themes shown previously in, the, in chapter 9 to have heavenly ascent implications. That the physical blessings were couched in spiritual terms can also be seen in Jacob's usage of the term great knowledge. 
In 2 Nephi chapter 10, verse 20, he uses it to describe the physical gathering. But this phrase is used by Nephi in 2 Nephi chapter 32, verse 7, and 1 Nephi chapter 1, verse 1, to refer to so-type mysteries. Depending on one's view of the direction of intertextuality between Nephi and Jacob's works, it is possible that Jacob is aware of how his brother consistently uses this term, and that Jacob is purposely coupling these two ideas, physical gathering and so-type experiences, with the phrase, great knowledge. As a listener's faith increases in the one, their faith increases in the other. Considering this, the content of 2 Nephi chapter 10 verse 22 could be referring to either notion. For behold, the Lord God has led away from time to time from the house of Israel, according to his will and pleasure. And now behold, the Lord remembereth all them who hath been broken off, wherefore he remembereth us also. At first glance, this reads as if it was referring only to a physical land of inheritance. Note, though, that 2 Nephi chapter 10 verse 23 begins with the word therefore, directly tying its content to that of the previous verse. However, verse 23 then goes on to describe content that sounds more like heavenly ascent themes than it does geographical gathering. Therefore, cheer up your hearts, and remember that ye are free to act for yourselves, to choose the way of everlasting death or the way of eternal life. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, reconcile yourselves to the will of God, and not to the will of the devil and the flesh. And remember, after ye are reconciled unto God, that it is only in and through the grace of God that ye are saved. Wherefore, may God raise you from death by the power of the resurrection, and also from everlasting death by the power of the atonement, that ye may be received into the eternal kingdom of God, that ye may praise him through grace divine. Amen. Motifs like spiritual paths, eternal life, and praising God sound like heavenly ascent concepts, but if so, then what is the connection between them and the geographical gathering in the previous verse? The answer might lie with Jacob's carefully crafted agenda. That agenda may be to assuage his listeners' concerns about their exile, while at the same time instructing them on a greater topic, their spiritual exile and their return to God's face through heavenly ascent. Nephi's comments as a redactor in the next chapter, 2 Nephi chapter 11, might further inform this question. First, remember that Nephi not only asked Jacob to speak, but also assigned a topic to his brother. Second, notice that Nephi points out that he purposely included only a portion of Jacob's sermon, meaning that, as carefully crafted as Jacob's message was, it received more sculpting by Nephi. Third, pay attention to Nephi's explanation as to why he chose to add Jacob's words and those of Isaiah into his book. Nephi explained he did this for or because they verily saw my Redeemer, even as I have seen him. In other words, the reason why Nephi assigned Jacob to speak on those specific chapters of Isaiah was because of Isaiah's experience of literally seeing the face of God, which is one of the major themes in those chapters. Furthermore, what qualified Jacob to speak about the words of these chapters was that he, like Nephi and Isaiah, had literally entered the presence of God as well. Why is this important? It is because Nephi's writings, as argued previously, are designed to explain his own heavenly ascent experience and to invite others to have their own. Therefore, it makes sense that if Nephi were to add other people's writings to his book, he would choose witnesses who had had a similar heavenly ascent agenda as his. Understanding this, it is clear why Nephi chose Jacob and Isaiah as co-contributors to his book, because they were witnesses of the validity and possibility of Nephi's heavenly ascent invitation. Thus, Nephi was attempting to use Jacob's and Isaiah's additional witnesses to prove them, i.e. the readers, that my words are true. This reasoning strongly suggests the principles that govern how Nephi selected Jacob's topic and then redacted his sermon included the desire to create content that was primarily heavenly ascent centric. Therefore, assuming this is a correct interpretation of Nephi's commentary in 2 Nephi chapter 11, the content in 2 Nephi chapters 9 through 10 is specifically designed to help readers understand and undertake a heavenly ascent experience. Reading this knowledge back onto the text greatly supports the analysis in this paper regarding the intent and content of those verses. For example, knowing that Nephi chose certain selections of Jacob's words to add another testimony of ascending to God's literal presence, Jacob's phrase, true knowledge of their Redeemer, has clear heavenly ascent undertones. Likewise, as argued for previously, Jacob's use of perfect knowledge while being judged in the presence of God has similar undertones. Considering all of this, the question might arise about how much influence Nephi had in the text of 2 Nephi chapters 9 through 10, as it stands today. While including portions of Jacob's sermon in his book, did Nephi add any of his own thoughts, as Mormon does through his redaction? Would this explain some of the stronger intertextualities between 2 Nephi chapter 9 and Nephi's sermon in 2 Nephi chapters 31-32? How much discussion did Nephi and Jacob have about Jacob's two-day sermon before he delivered it? Or for that matter, how much discussion did Nephi have with Jacob about his redaction of Jacob's content for his book in 2 Nephi? Though some of these questions might not be answerable today, it seems clear that the text as it has come down to us has purposeful heavenly ascent motifs dispersed throughout its pages. In relation to the plan of salvation, 
Considering 2 Nephi chapters 9 through 10 compositely, it is clear that the sermon contains many phrases and concepts that may reflect heavenly ascent motifs. These heavenly ascent motifs are less likely a series of coincidences and more likely the product of a careful and purposeful design on the part of Jacob and his brother Nephi. Not only did Nephi assign the content for Jacob's speech, he also then edited that speech with the overt purpose of proving his book's agenda, which was arguably determined by his divine counsel experience. Therefore, the heavenly ascent motifs in Jacob's sermon were most likely a part of a conscious design that was selected by both the speaker and his brother who edited his words. Considering the likelihood of this design in connection with the purpose of Jacob's sermon, the thesis of this paper can now be directly addressed. First, notice that an overarching theme of this sermon is the plan of the great creator. In fact, referring to the sermon's main problem and solution, Jacob exclaims, Oh, how great plan of our God! From this phrase and the overall context of this verse, it can be gathered that the purpose of Jacob's sermon is to teach his listeners about God's plan to save all men, or, in other words, the plan that ends with mankind being saved in the kingdom of God. This plan is the plan of salvation that this paper is attempting to address and is also the overarching theme of Jacob's sermon. Even 2 Nephi chapter 10, which arguably is more focused on geographical salvation than eternal salvation, still contains a similar message of God's plan to save mankind, an idea described as being received into the eternal kingdom of God, that ye may praise him through grace divine. Likewise, when Nephi describes the covenantal content of Jacob's sermon, he refers to the material as the great and eternal plan of deliverance from death. With the understanding that this sermon is clearly teaching about the plan of salvation, consider the implications that this sermon is simultaneously packed with heavenly sent motifs. When Jacob, or for that matter Nephi, refers to the plan of salvation, they do so in heavenly sent terminology. Rather than beginning a description of the plan of salvation with the pre-earth life, these chapters start the discussion with the creation of the world. Unlike some popular models of the plan of salvation used today, which terminate in a description of several degrees of heaven, Jacob's understanding of the plan of salvation simply culminates in a person being admitted to the presence of God, with no further description of a qualifying degree degree of glory. As the previous examination of the text demonstrates, the choice is not between levels of heaven, but rather between ascension to God or descension towards the devil. Furthermore, instead of references to the spirit world, heavenly sent motifs such as cleansing processes, secret knowledge, feasting on the word of God, prayer, and angels are found in this model between the creation of the world and an individual's ascension into the Lord's presence. This evidence seems to be a strong indicator that Book of Mormon prophets, at least Jacob and Nephi, viewed the plan of salvation within a heavenly sent model. In other words, whether the ascension occurred in mortality or after death at the final judgment, salvation in the Book of Mormon should likely be interpreted as redemption from the fall by entering back into the presence of God. In addition to the above conclusion, these results also suggest the profitability of continuing this research with the other occurrences of the word plan in the Book of Mormon. Since 2 Nephi chapters 9-10 through 10 supports this thesis, it is plausible that further research into other sermons about the plan of salvation may also support the thesis of this paper. As additional sermons are shown to have similar conclusions to those regarding 2 Nephi chapters 9 through 10, and as additional authors are shown to view the plan of salvation in similar terms as to Jacob and Nephi, the hypothesis that the Book of Mormon prophets viewed the plan of salvation in terms of a heavenly sent paradigm will be further confirmed. In summary, there exists a strong argument that Jacob's sermon in 2 Nephi chapters 9 through 10 is filled with heavenly sent motifs that reflect Nephi's use of heavenly sent themes, as well as the patterns of biblical and extra biblical heavenly sent writings. At the same time, one of the overarching themes of Jacob's sermon is God's plan of salvation for mankind. Considering these two conclusions together offers evidence that strongly indicates that Jacob viewed the plan of salvation in terms of a heavenly sent model. Further research utilizing the hermeneutical approach used in this paper with other sermons in the Book of Mormon that are about the plan of salvation could continue to solidify this conclusion. Schuyler Smith fell in love with gospel teaching and learning while serving his mission in the Texas-Houston South Mission. Upon returning home, he earned his B.A. in economics from BYU and worked for six years as a religious educator in seminaries and institutes. He received his first master's degree in religious education from BYU and is currently pursuing his M.B.A. at the University of Michigan. He is married to his wonderful wife, Alexis, and together they have three amazing children. This has been a recording of Heavenly Ascents in Jacob's Writings in 2 Nephi, addressing the question of what the plan of salvation is in the Book of Mormon by Schuyler Smith. Published in Interpreter, a Journal of Latter-day Saint, Faith and Scholarship, Volume 60, 2024. Read by Skylar Smith. This audio recording is copyrighted under a Creative Commons license and may be freely distributed if it remains unchanged. The journal and its websites are credited and is for non-commercial use. A printed version of this and many other articles can be found at journal.interpretersfoundation.org. More information about the Interpreter Foundation, along with a wide array of additional resources, can be found at interpreterfoundation.org.